Welcome to the Epiphany Lutheran Church podcast. These messages, based on a biblical text, interpreting the hearer's situation, informed by Christian teaching, creatively proclaim the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth for forgiveness and new life starting now. Epiphany Lutheran Church is located in South City, St. Louis, Missouri. Our vision is to be a community that puts Jesus first, neighbors second, and ourselves third by gathering to be served by him so we can grow to love as he loves. Learn more at epiphany-stl.org. That's epiphany-stl.org. Our text today comes from our gospel reading from Matthew 17. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Thomas Aquinas lived 750 years ago, and yet he remains one of the most influential philosophers and theologians of the Western world. His most significant work, the Summa Theologiae, covers nine volumes and 3,500 pages. Not only is it comprehensive, but it's well-written, and its arguments are compelling. Now, this is not to say that you and I are going to agree with everything that Thomas has to say. And it's certainly not often that a Lutheran sermon would consider Thomas Aquinas other than to criticize or dismiss some part of his teaching. But you see, there's something about Thomas which is remarkable no matter what your confession. You see, his greatest work, that nine-volume Summa, was never finished. And it wasn't a premature death that kept Aquinas from completing his work. No, it was something else. Sometime, the year before he died, something happened to Thomas that changed everything. During a regular celebration of the Lord's Supper, Aquinas had some sort of unexpected, ecstatic, incredible experience that shook him to his core. He refused, or perhaps maybe he was unable ever to describe or explain it to anyone. And yet the amazing thing is that after the experience, he stopped writing completely. When urged to get back to writing, when urged to finish his summa, Thomas could only say, all that I have written seems like straw to me. It appears that Thomas must have come face to face with some glimpse of some great hard reality that left him stunned into silence. What did he see? <laughs> we don't know. He wouldn't tell. But what is clear is that whatever slice of hard reality Thomas saw, it overwhelmed him, changed him. Getting a straight dose of reality can be hard on a person. Reality comes crashing in, and it can be tough. But you know that. Now maybe you've never had a mystical, ecstatic experience during a worship service. I haven't yet, maybe someday. And maybe you've never in your life experienced anything that even comes close to what might be called an intense vision or an encounter with the hyper-reality of the spiritual world around us. 
And yet, even with or without mind-bending visions into the deeper and greater realities that are surrounding us, you encounter hard reality all the time. You've had plenty of experience with what mundane reality can do to a person when it comes crashing in. One good shot of reality is like a slap in the face or a punch in the gut. A hard dose of reality that comes every day can upend your life and ruin your future outlook forever. Reality can be brutal. Longtime Christians get a hard dose of reality Sunday after Sunday when they look around and compare what is with what once was. Their hearts ache. The heyday of bustling facilities, jammed sanctuaries, and Sunday school rooms spilling over into every odd nook and corner. Well, that seems distant and dreamlike now. The social clout the church once enjoyed has all been spent long ago. And now the church is seen as little more than a source of therapy to help with life's hard knocks. Or worse, is considered basically irrelevant, a relic that is now outdated with disproven ideas or worse yet, just a factory of hate. The reality is that these are not great days for the institutional church. It's a hard reality to face. Reality's hard truth does more, though, than just mock our memories and make our hearts yearn for what the church has lost. The reality we encounter in the world around us is every bit as devastating. We look at the situation in America today, and there's much to cause concern. Cultural divides, racial divisions, political fractures that seem to get bigger instead of smaller. Everybody seems worried about it. Polarizations over issues ranging from sexuality to immigration to foreign relations. They leave many people feeling anxious and concerned. People worry about what the future might hold. And then there's the always present lingering threats of homegrown terrorism or fresh concerns about airborne viruses and the ongoing decay and death of drug abuse, urban violence, children being shot, family strife, sexual depravity, class envy, income inequality, a shrinking middle class, wars in far-flung corners of the world that grind on without resolution. Yeah, the world's reality is harsh. And but even worse than all of the hard things we see out there in the world are the hard realities we see in our own homes and in our own lives. A marriage that started with such promise and optimism has deteriorated into a grudge match in which everyone loses. Parents struggle to maintain a productive and congenial relationship with children who seem always to resist every overture. Enjoyment or employment and your work is not enjoyable and satisfying. And going home after work is like entering another battle zone. Addictions of every variety invade the lives of ordinary people, drive them into a reality that is overrun with desperation and despair. Devoid of joy, disease, grinds down the healthy, sometimes shriveling the very personalities of once vibrant people, leaving only hard, 
abrasive shells, obsessed with trivialities, hardly recognizable to themselves, let alone to those who love them. And always, always eventually, death intrudes. Death strikes down and destroys, leaving behind nothing but aching grief that refuses to heal. Reality is hard. You know it. You see it. You live it. The reality that you encounter can leave you numb and wondering where you fit and why anything at all matters. And so it's in the context of hard, crippling, incapacitating reality that we arrive today, this morning, at the Sunday we call Transfiguration. And perhaps here, perhaps in this story, we can find some refuge from the relentless reality that weighs on us and that threatens to pull us under. The story of Jesus and his remarkable mountaintop transformation is often billed as the great pick-me-up, the glimpse of glory events that is supposed to give us a charge to get us through the coming Lenten fast. We've been told that on the mountain, the disciples were given a taste of Jesus' true being, a bit of heavenly reality to help steal them for the arduous, devastating days that would soon unfold around them. This day, transfiguration is supposed to be the bright ray of sunshine before the descending gloom of the passion that's coming. I wonder, though, if the take this take on transfiguration somehow misses the whole point. I mean, how can this event on the side of a mountain be such a great jolt of joy and a promise of brilliant prospects when it leaves Peter, James, and John face down in the dirt, totally undone, and beside themselves in abject terror? Not much fun about that. Maybe we too easily miss that part. And why not? I mean, with so much great and exciting stuff going on in this story, why linger on the reaction of the disciples? Why not focus on the radiance of Jesus and how bright his clothes were? Or on the conversation he was having with Moses and Elijah and think about what great things they were discussing? Why not think about the glowing cloud and the voice of God himself booming out? That's the sort of reality that we don't usually see or experience. And frankly, we could use something truly amazing and wonderful to console us and inspire us in the midst of our realities that seem to drag us down on this last Sunday before Lent. But it won't do. You see, we can't impose our needs and our opinions on the simple reality recorded in the text. We need to face it. You see, for Jesus' inner circle, those three disciples, the day on the mountainside was not a pleasant one. Think of the story from their perspective. It wasn't such a glory moment. First, Jesus, their teacher, their friend, their trusted and familiar leader, was changed right before their eyes. He was literally glowing with a radiance they had never seen. A little unnerving, I think. 
But things only intensified when the two greatest Old Testament patriarchs arrived to converse with Jesus. The sight of Moses and Elijah, the very embodiment of the law and the prophets, was incredible. The three disciples were seeing things that went beyond the realm of possibility, things that would blow the mind of any Israelite. And it was right at this stage of the story that Peter started talking and made his offer to build some shelters for the three great individuals they were witnessing. Peter's adrenaline obviously was doing the talking. His offer was nonsense. It was just the babbling of a man who was literally coming apart. And talking probably afforded some sense of normalcy or provided some kind of comfort that he was at least talking, doing something he knew how to do. Mercifully, Peter's words were ignored. But the progression toward terror only accelerated, and Peter was soon pushed well past the talking stage. First, it was the shining, dazzling cloud. The disciples didn't need any explanation. They knew it when they saw it. They had been enveloped in the Shekinah glory, the Old Testament presence of God himself. The divine voice confirmed it. They were standing before the face of God. There was only one thing to do. Squeeze their eyes shut, dive into the dust, and wait for annihilation. God's reality on display left the three men powerless and helpless. They knew that when men encounter God, men die. It's what always happens when humans see the reality of God. They're undone. Most people think that this was the reality that so completely overwhelmed Thomas Aquinas making it so that he couldn't even write anymore. In the light of God's glory, all of Thomas's work was nothing but straw. And there is at work here a profound and beautiful truth that can help us. You see, next to God's glory, man's greatest achievements, man's most wonderful works are nothing but trash. That's what Peter, James, and John saw so clearly on the mountain that it drove them into the dust. They were worthless. They had nothing to offer. They were done for. Reality destroyed them. And so they lay there, hugging the dirt on the mountain, waiting for the bolt of holy and just wrath to finish them off. But what they next felt was not the hellfire of God crashing on them. They felt the gentle touch of Jesus. And when at last they were persuaded to look up again and open their eyes, the eyes that they had welded shut against the glory of God, what they saw was Jesus. Just Jesus. Ordinary plain, non-glowing, earthbound, fully human Jesus. And that, of course, was the most wonderful sight that they could ever have seen. That was the only thing they 
ever wanted to see. Jesus only. For Peter, James, and John, Jesus was their rabbi, their friend. He was with them like any other man was with them. And it was the ordinariness that was the comfort. It was the reassuring and encouraging truth of the ordinary. That was the real power of that transfiguration event. The disciples did not need heaven's glory. They couldn't handle that glory. They just needed flesh and bones, ordinary Jesus. This is the extreme wonder. This is the real glory of Transfiguration Sunday. This is the thing that brings us comfort. When reality drives you into the dirt, when the heavy monotony of life grinds you into dust, when the unraveling fabric of the culture and the horror of sin and disease and death all crash into your life and conspire against you and push you into subdued silence and inability, at that moment you don't need a bit of heavenly glory. You don't need a flash of divine majesty to lift you up and make things right. What you need is Jesus. Just Jesus. Plain, ordinary, in the flesh, Jesus. With his grace and his forgiveness and his gentle touch and his new life. Jesus only is the only reality you need. And Jesus only is exactly the reality that you get. For the disciples, it was Jesus in the flesh, ordinary, routine, reassuringly real. For you, it is Jesus cloaked in a bit of bread and a swallow of wine, both plain and unremarkable. The bread does not glow. The wine does not radiate or even bubble. It's common, routine, reassuringly real. Week after week after week, here in his church, you meet Jesus. Week after week after week, Jesus is all you need, only Jesus. Learn what the disciples learned. Jesus is enough. He's all you need. Reality is not going to let up. It's not going to melt away. It is, after all, real. But the hard, shocking reality that steals your joy, saps your energy, and depletes your life is more than matched, is in fact overmatched, overwhelmed and conquered by the far greater reality of Jesus here for you. Don't yearn for something more. Don't venture off on a vain search for something else to give meaning to life. Don't fall into the trap of seeking what is more scintillating, more attractive, more incredible. Glimpses of heaven's glory and divine reality aren't all they're cracked up to be. They can be altogether devastating. Just ask Peter, James, or John, or Thomas Aquinas. You don't need a shining heavenly vision 
What you need is the ordinary. What you need is just plain Jesus and nothing else. And that's what you get. You get Jesus only. Amen. Lord God, keep our eyes focused on Jesus only. Jesus for us in our hard reality. Jesus with a far greater reality. Your love and your forgiveness and your promise. Amen.